0: The lowly hydrocarbon, the fuel for the world's economy. Its significance is matched by the amazing process with which it's formed. Now, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory notes that hydrocarbons, or molecules, comprised of the elements of hydrogen and carbon are the main building block of all crude oil and natural gas. Furthermore, geologists and geochemists believe that nearly all, or if you're thinking about it technically, 99% of the hydrocarbons in commercially produced crude oil and natural gas are formed by the decomposition of the remains of living organisms, which happen to be buried under layers of sediment in the Earth's crust, a region approximately five to 10 miles below the Earth's surface. So folks, what does that mean? Well, the next time you see a fossilized dinosaur, be sure to thank them for their service. But what happens when this amazing miracle of pressure, time, and geology it gets expensive? And what should you know about the complex systems that transport and supply most of the world's energy? Well, strap in, folks, because we're going to find out on this episode of Loaded and Rolling. Welcome to Loaded and Rolling, folks. I'm your host, Thomas Watson, and fuel prices have been the talk of the town for the fat past few months, unless you live under a rock five to 10 miles down. Whether it involves geopolitical events like Ukraine, consumer spending at the pump, or commodities futures, fuel is the lifeblood of the world's economy. Now, when prices go up, consumers spend less, buy fewer goods, which leads to lower sales, economic growth, and freight volumes. Understanding fuel, therefore, helps us understand many other parts of the economy. But what happens when energy prices rise and ordinary people start paying more attention to what fuel prices are doing? Well, that's what I hope to answer with my next guest. Joining us to talk about those fuels and their impact is FreightWave's very own journalist and oil market expert, Mr. John Kingston. Now, John has an almost 40-year career covering commodities, most of the time at S&P Global and Platts, but he happened to create the dated Brent benchmark, now the world's most important crude oil marker. Welcome, John. How you doing, Thomas? Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on. Uh, I know there's a lot going on in fuel, and just to, to start for those folks who don't know where, how did you start getting into the oil and the commodities? What's some of the history of, of how this all came to be?
1: Well, I, I left the uh, general newspapers uh, in 1980 to join a publication called American Metal Market, which is still around, been around for about... 135 years now. It covers the metals and the steel industry. And I was there four and a half years and then decided I wanted to make a move. And I, I had heard of Platts. I, I knew that it was well respected. And I uh, actually saw an ad in uh, the New York Times. The, 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 the Sunday New York Times used to have this big help wanted section that was the absolute go-to place for finding a job back in the day. Uh, and I saw, I think I was already looking at McGraw-Hill you know, McGraw-Hill eventually morphed to become S&P Global. I was already looking at McGraw-Hill for opportunities. Then I saw the Platts ad and I said, I think that's for me. So I joined Platts in 1985. We were probably not 100 employees then worldwide. And now I, I don't even know how to measure it because they're, they're, they're part of the whole big com- uh, commodities unit of S&P Global. But even before they merged uh, with um, with IHS Market, they were up to about probably 14 to 1,500 people. So Uh, and when I left, it was well over a thousand. So it was great to be there and see this tremendous growth.
0: And how does, we're talking about oil and commodities. A lot of people understand the price they pay at the pump, but how important is this commodities movement and and what does it do in terms of trying to understand oil?
1: Well, it's extremely important. Uh, look when, when, when markets, let's talk about diesel because this is where our audience is. And this is what I mostly write about. Um, there is a ultra low sulfur diesel, uh, more uh, contract traded on the CME Commodity Exchange, that has morphed over the years. It used to be a heating oil contract. In fact, it was kind of like the original oil contract on the old NYMEX. NYMEX is now owned by CME. Um, and then as as heating oil and diesel specs kind of combined to, to make uh, you know a clean fuel on both sides, it really became a a, a ULSD ultra low sulfur diesel contract. So that can have tremendous volatility, and in recent months it has had tremendous volatility. Last week it had tremendous volatility. I mean we, we are clearly in the middle of a market that is uh, just we just really haven't seen in a long time. Um, and so you know the movements that go up you know seven cents one day and down nine cents the next day are not going to show up at the pump on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but over time they will if the uh, uh, if the ultra low silver diesel price on the CME is at 350 and it goes down to 275 over a course of like 6 weeks. Yeah, it might get there by you know huge swings dropping a lot one day, up the next, down the next, up the next, but as long as it gets there, eventually the price at the pump will reflect that. There is no firm timeline how long it will take. I know that the you know, people say, well it takes 6 weeks. I I just really don't like that formulation. I think people are looking for a number to hold on to how long it will take, I, I just think it's a little more complicated than that. And when we're talking about ultra, we're, yeah yeah go ahead, but but that but
0: that that the price on the commodity exchange will eventually make its way to the pump. And we'll talk about this ultra low sulfur diesel (USLD). Uh, is that like the finished product that I can put in the pump, or are we talking about still the raw materials that then gets further refined? No, ULSD
1: that's traded on the CME is a finished product. Okay, that can go right into a truck. Uh, gasoline. Uh, what they trade gasoline on the CME, they traded uh, something called RBOB, which stands for reformulated blend stock for oxygenate blending. You don't need to remember. OK, they call it RBOB and think of it as gasoline without the ethanol. So to your question, RBOB, yeah, you can put it in RBOB. You really can't put in a car um, and uh, ultra over diesel you can. So, yes, it is. It is a finished product.
0: And that's what kind of ties my next question. We talked about uh, thought, talked with Scott Burnhang about fuel buying and hedging strategies. That's kind of literally what some large carriers and truck stops and gas stations are doing, or fuel stations, correction, uh, is they're saying, well, I can use this USLD, the ultra low sulfur diesel. I'm going to start doing these hedges to try and prevent me from paying too much, right? They can. I mean, I know what Scott said. I, I will say that
1: what I found is that trunking companies de- generally do not hedge that much. Um, it ties up a fair amount of capital, and let's face it, they work on pretty tight margins. So I don't know that they necessarily want to tie up that capital in hedging. Some of them do. Really, the bigger carriers have found that the best way around it is the fuel surcharge. It takes that volatility and it dumps it on their customers. And that doesn't mean that they're uh, not exposed to it. You know, when you When you look at a company's quarterly earnings, Obviously, only the public companies, uh, that that information is available, but they have the same figure at the private companies, which is what is your percentage of of, of empty miles? Because that percentage of empty miles does not come with a fuel surcharge, whereas you assume that for a a larger carrier, most of their miles do come with a fuel surcharge. So if you can use the fuel surcharge to successfully move that price onto the backs of the shipper, then you really don't need to hedge. Now, if you're an independent owner-operator and you don't have a fuel surcharge and it's your job to go out and make sure you secure a price for your services that covers all of your costs, including fuel, okay, that's great, but you're not going to hedge that. Again, we're talking about tying up capital there. So um, I, from what I know, uh, trucking companies are not big hedging
0: companies. Just because that money could be used elsewhere. And we're talking about the fuel surcharge. It's based off of a DOE EIA benchmark, Department of Energy, Energy Administration Association. Uh, did that benchmark kind of, from your experience in, in working and talking about it, did that just spring up out of nowhere? Or has everyone always established something where I'm going to try and reimburse you?
1: I'd love to tell you the history of it, but I don't know the history of it. In fact, I will tell you a story that when I f- uh, first joined FreightWaves, uh, Craig Fuller kept talking about the DOE price. And uh, you know the Energy Information Administration is an arm of the DOE, Department of Energy. And he kept talking about the DOE price. And I thought, what is he talking about? I mean, I've been in the oil industry for all these years, and I've never heard anybody really particularly give a give a damn about the weekly average retail diesel price that the Department of Energy p- pushed out. And then he ex- explained it to me. He says, "This is the basis for fuel surcharges." And I said, "Oh, okay. Now I understand why you talk about it all the time because I didn't know. I really didn't know. So I cannot tell you what the genesis of it is. I, I but I, I just always think it's fascinating." to either listen to or read the transcripts of the, uh, of the conference calls, the quarterly conference calls of the big uh, truckload or LTL carriers. And uh, they really don't talk about diesel prices. If you weren't going to talk about diesel prices in the first half of this year, when were you ever going to talk about it? And the reason is because they've used the fuel surcharge to successfully dump most of their costs down onto the shippers.
0: I think that's a really surprising point. So out of all the earnings calls, most of them are just talking about their top-line revenue and they're completely avoiding that concept of fuel, right? I, I just It just almost never comes up. I mean, it, maybe it'll come
1: up in passing. They'll say, oh, well, fuel was a headwind for us this quarter. But um, because so much of the freight has moved at, you know, at the big companies, again, and not the smaller guys who who really can't operate a fuel surcharge because it takes work to do that. Um, but of the larger companies that, that, that move a lot of freight, that have a fuel surcharge, um, they have successfully taken it out as a significant factor. That doesn't mean it's not a factor. If you if you have a quarter in which, let's say, the price at the pump is declining rapidly, uh, and of course the fuel sur the the, the DOE price is on a weak lag, then you will be collecting a higher price. Let's say for you know four or five days um, while the price of the pump is declining because your price is tied to the prior Mondays. So on Thursday, if the price of the pump has dropped six or seven cents from where it was on Monday, you're paying that lower price, but your fuel surcharge is set to the price that came out Monday. So that's a great week for you. Now, if the price is going up, it's a bad week for you for the same reason, the inverse of what I just said. So um, it can be a headwind, it can be a tailwind. If you've got a, significant, a, a price that's significantly dropped over the course of the quarter, like I think you're going to find in the third quarter, um, it's, it's definitely a tailwind. Uh, if you have a significantly, up, a uh, uh, price that's moving upward, it's a headwind.
0: And kind of kind of a random question here. You know, we talk a lot about uh, movement in oil and diesel and gas. Uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve is being used right now to help buoy the markets. But uh, if you know the answer or not, is that something that diesel gets to come out or do? Is diesel basically having to deal with its own issues uh, and its own refinement process compared to what most, you know, motorists and gasoline have to, to worry about? Yeah, It's a good question because, see, look, the, the SPR,
1: the United States just didn't release oil from the SPR. There's a coordinated release of strategic oil stocks by many members of the International Energy Agency, which are primarily kind of the Western economies. So the United States did not do that alone. And they were doing it for a very obvious reason, the loss of Russian supplies as a result of various types of embargoes, whether they be public embargoes or private embargoes of Russian oil. Now, the reality is that it appears that through other channels, Russian output is pretty much where it was prior to the invasion. So I, I really don't know that there's any need for any more releases from the SPR, even though yesterday uh, the U.S. government announced that they were tendering for to sell some more oil. Uh, diesel has its own list of issues, uh, which uh, I've really come to the, the forefront now. Uh, the, the the pandemic. Resulted in some refineries being closed as a result of a loss of demand and the normal kind of flow of new refineries being built, which have always been happening in recent years in other countries, not in the US, that stopped. So you had a decline in refining capacity that was not offset by new capacity coming on. Uh, I think that the diesel market, uh, now, that, now that would affect gasoline and diesel, and yet the historical spread of gasoline. Um, to, to, to crude and the historical spread of diesel to crude moved higher at very, very different paces with diesel moving a lot faster. My view is that th- that is IMO 2020 kicking in in 2022. So IMO 2020 was a fuel, uh, was a, a rule promulgated by the International Maritime Organization. The process toward IMO 2020 started in like 2003. Okay. Oh, wow. This is very, very, very long in coming and it finally kicked in in 2020 uh and it is a requirement that the, the fuel that is burned in ships be have a significantly tighter sulfur spec in the past you could throw just about anything into a ship it was just the wild west um and and without going it too much into the weed into the weeds there was a there's a new fuel out there uh, that is uh, was designed to meet the specs of IMO 2020 that used a lot of the same feedstocks that you use to make diesel. So the fear was always that the diesel market would, would be impacted by the start of IMO 2020. So IMO 2020 starts in 2020, January 1st. Actually, that fall, there were some signs in the diesel market that maybe it was moving higher than crude uh, as a result of IMO 2020. And then, of course, what happens? Uh, the pandemic hits. Diesel demand and jet demand. Remember, jet fuel is a dispute like like diesel, so they're tied together. Jet fuel really collapses. Uh, Diesel fuel falls by a little less. uh, And you really don't get a test of this theory about IMO 2020. My view is that with things coming back, with diesel demand up there, with jet demand snapping back too, you are most definitely getting a test of the uh, of the theories regarding IMO 2020. And you're seeing that in the spread between diesel and crude, which are at really historic levels. Well,
0: that's why I heard the ships used to, it was called bunk fuel or something, right? It was a very heavy polluting yeah. fuel. And now they're, they're competing for diesel, the ultra low sulfur, right? Yeah, it's bunker fuel actually is a term for it. And, uh, you know, 20 years ago,
1: and even beyond that, uh, you know, the, the kind of stuff that they put in there, <laughs> woo, nasty stuff. You know stuff that's you know really heavily polluting, uh, and um, you know the IMO, which is an arm of the UN, has worked to clean that up, and uh, and they really have. And and IMO 2020 is really one of the the final and most significant steps. But it's kicking back, and I'm convinced it's kicking back into the diesel market now.
0: And it's like a perfect storm because uh, you mentioned earlier about the U.S. losing some refinement capacity. Uh, for those unaware, I, can I just turn one back on, or does it cost a few billion? Like, what would happen if we suddenly said, "Crap, we need more diesel"?
1: Well, I mean, some of them they've been re, they, you know, some of them have been repurposed. In some cases, to make renewable diesel, like a few in California. Renewable diesel uh, is a is a product that comes from feedstocks like animal fats. And it goes through a refining process. Um, and what comes out is a finished diesel product. You can take renewable diesel and you can put it right into a truck. Uh, there's something called biodiesel, which you can't run a truck on. Uh, what you can do is, like, like one thing you find here, I'm in the Northeast, so um, we use heating oil. You'll find that a lot of your heating oil might be blended with biodiesel, maybe up to 10%. Um, so a lot of these plants... Have been changed to renewable diesel. There's a whole series of credits, excuse me, in California <laughs> that um, that make it worthwhile to do this. So no, you can't just turn them back on. Uh, there are some that they've tried to do recently. Uh, the, the, the refining margins are so good, but but it's hard. Um, you know, refining is, you know, re, 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 refining reminds me of what there's, there's an old joke about Russian literature in, in, in a Russian. Tragedy: Everybody dies, and in a Russian comedy, everybody dies, but they have a mm-hmm. smile on their face. And that's kind of like what ref- that's kind of like what refining is. You know, that the good times are really nice, but they tend not to last. And yet, the business somehow manages to attract capital. I don't, maybe it's the greater fool theory. I don't know, but nobody's rushing to uh, put a lot to, to reopen refineries longer term, particularly when you have some percentage of the fleet that's going to go over to batteries.
0: That's what I'm kind of curious about. So we have a situation where there's an energy crisis in Europe now. Uh, diesel is getting competition, not only from trucks, but potentially uh, power plants and stuff, right? I think you mentioned earlier as you were writing that uh, Germany and other European countries are considering using that diesel to get through the winter, right? Well, that's, that's, that's
1: always the possibility that if natural gas gets so expensive that you can use diesel or diesel or diesel-like fuels as a heating fuel instead of natural gas. Um, and uh, as a heating fuel, or you can use it to, to generate electricity. Though, though there's a heavier product called residual fuel, also known as fuel oil. You'd probably turn to that, but you could turn to diesel as well. So yeah, I mean, diesel is definitely a fallback on natural gas. Natural gas in Europe is, I would say, right now the most important commodity market, at least on the energy side in the world, as we're seeing the Western companies trying to uh, Western companies trying to get away from Russian gas. And um, so, uh, where was I going with this? So, yeah, so diesel, diesel could be their fuel to the rescue, which would push up the price of diesel.
0: I think there was a guy uh, from Credit Suisse who talked about put a good theory where it was Russian natural gas that was cheap, fueled the German industrial exports, and then the U.S. bought a bunch of it. So it's a cycle where this fuel and this energy situation has played such a pivotal role. Now with the geopolitical stuff. Is there the opportunity that prices may go down on their own, or do you think we're kind of in a systemic long haul because our way of doing things is kind of out of whack? I I just don't know. I mean,
1: this is this is this is uncharted territory. I would say that um, Germany has managed to put a fair amount of gas into storage ahead of schedule, Uh, but you know you can only put so much into storage. I definitely do think that prices have benefited from the releases of the SPR. They've been as high as a million barrels a day. Uh, you know, it's it, it's almost like a new country came online with with exports of a million barrels a day. Believe me, that's a lot of exports. Uh, and so that's going to wind down. Uh, SPR numbers are at their lowest number in a long time. And um, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. It, you know, the, the, the Europeans have tied themselves to Russian gas supplies in part because it was there and there was lots of them. And the Russians kept saying, you know, we are reliable suppliers. You can count on us. Uh, and the Germans certainly believe that. I mean, nobody anticipated the Ukraine invasion. So um, I, I don't want to make any predictions. Um, as as, as uh, Dan Quisenberry, the famous baseball reliever, said,
0: I have seen the future and it is much like the present, only longer. So that's <laughs> about as good as I can do as far as predicting. Understandable. I'd be a richer man if I knew the answers as well. Uh, Looking at, for folks who want to get into understanding fuel commodities, trying to get started because it does have such an impact, uh, through your experiences, what are some great ways or what are some great topics that they need to start paying attention to, to start learning all of this? Well,
1: you know, I mean, I'm not going to cite the the, the sources that the professionals read because first of all, most of them are behind some kind of a firewall or need some kind of subscription. So the question is, what can you read uh, what can you read if uh, if you don't you don't have that, that kind of access? I do do a story on diesel at least once a week uh, when the EIA number comes out, and, and the story will pull together some of the factors in the market that may have driven prices higher or lower. So I'll talk about that. You know, if you just Google things like like oil, Bloomberg, oil, Reuters, I mean, you can get a variety of stories. Uh, Wall Street Journal, if you're a subscriber, there has some very good coverage. I'm trying to think what's sort of out there that's freebie. I mean, if if you do some searching around under the word oil
0: and oil markets, you can find a lot. But uh, if nothing else, you can come back to the Freightways Weekly story. Well, we can tie into, you just recently started a new podcast, or you've had one. I think we have the graphics for it now. It's called Drilling Deep. Could you describe a little bit about what that is and kind of what it goes into?
1: Well, I started Drilling Deep at the end of 2019, and that was uh, started as an audio podcast. And um, it didn't have anywhere near the, the fancy graphics that you're showing now. And I started by talking about oil markets for maybe the first five minutes. And then I would have a guest of the week. And the guest of the week was usually not oil related. Sometimes it was, but it was often just some kind of freight or trucking related. Um, I realized a couple of months ago that having an audio podcast that FreightWaves it just doesn't cut it because we, I was the only audio only podcast and we've got all the offerings there on FreightWaves TV. And I realized that for me to really kind of get more of an audience, I had to get on FreightWaves TV. Uh, so we've done the taken the steps necessary to turn it into a video podcast or video show. And it drops every Friday at 2.30.
0: And of course, it's available on demand at any time. And for folks who are interested, you've been doing it since 2019 as well. Any current guests or previous guests you recommend to kind of uh, get your feet into it and uh, check it out? Well, 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 oil related or just in general? Uh, let's do it with first, oil, and then give me one or two general. I'm trying to remember the last good oil analyst I've had there. I can't
1: really remember. Um, I, just, uh, I, I just interviewed a guy named Matt Harris, who's the president of Pathway Leasing. We talk about truck leasing. Um, and I had him on on Drilling Deep when it was audio only. Good interview, a good discussion about leasing and where it stands. So I would definitely recommend that one.
0: Perfect. And then from your experiences coming from, you know, writing for like Platts and, and writing in journalism and coming to Waves, was there anything interesting or uh, anything unexpected that struck, you know, doing what our own form of media is now?
1: No, in the sense that, you know, one thing you learn as a business journalist is that every industry is fascinating in its own way. So obviously it was a really big deal for me. I'd been with my prior employer for 32 and a half years. Uh, and then I was told one day that my services were no longer desired, uh, which happens to a lot of us. So it's not all that embarrassing. Uh, and I landed with Freightways three weeks later uh, after my final day. And uh, the, I, you know, so there's a lot of, it's very nervous. You know, you're, you're sort of in this warm embrace of a big company for all those years and you know what buttons to push and who to go speak. And suddenly you've got a new employer. The one thing that I never had any doubt about Was that I would find that I wouldn't find the subject matter interesting. Because when you are a business journalist, as I started to say before, you realize that every industry is fascinating in its own way. And I just knew that trucking and freight would be interesting. I didn't know that much about it, but I figured, okay, let me come on over and I'll learn about it. And I was never worried that I'd be bored. And I certainly never have been bored.
0: That's the best part. Uh, I've been doing this for about seven years before doing journalism, and I can feel the same way. Uh, the other part is every time I thought I knew something, I learned more, and I realized I had no idea what oh, I was yeah. gonna... <laughs> Start oh, yeah. all over. Never, never stop learning. Never stop. Exactly. John, thank you so much. Very, very excited to have you on the show as, as always. And i recommend everybody check out Drilling Deep as well. Uh, and then you said it was Fridays at 2 p.m.? 2.30. 2.30. We'll keep an eye out for it, John. Uh, Thanks again. I'll be looking for your next article as well on the DOE. We'll throw it in my newsletter. Okay, great. Thanks, Thomas. That's going to be a wrap for this show today. Uh, You can check us out. I happen to sometimes host SiriusXM as a fill-in, as well as we have loaded and rolling the newsletter. I'm seeing an image for F3 coming up in November. we got to throw that out there. Do we have the moving graphics? Oh, If you're listening to the podcast, go watch it. It's got some really cool B-roll of like Chattanooga. I, I don't always like to, to give compliments, but uh, it, it's super fun. It even has a yacht in it. So uh, those of you who want to check it out every uh, Wednesday night and Saturday morning, Loaded and Rolling, the newsletter. We also have Loaded and Rolling, the TV show podcast extraordinaire, which you're listening to right now. And that comes on at 1 p.m. on Tuesdays. So it have been an absolute pleasure. Hope this was very helpful for everybody. Catch us next week. And in the meantime, keep it classy.